What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and I am excited to be bringing you a replay of the Facebook Live that we just did last week on the Friday show. So you probably are like, hey, where is the financial health assessments that Ryan and Casey do every Friday? Well, this week is a little bit of a curveball. We're going to bring that Facebook Live in, and it's talking all about syndicated real estate, investing in it, how to vet it, all the good stuff that you need to know and understand about real estate syndication. Uh, It is not just me talking, so you don't just have to hear me blab about real estate. I brought on Vina Jetty uh, from Vive Funds and Enzo Multifamily, as well as Dr. Kathy Carroll, who is probably one of the smartest people I know. She's an MD and a CFA, and you've heard her on the show multiple times. Uh, talking about locums work and investing in real estate and all the different ways to do that uh, with her firm, Rica.io, R-Y-C-A.io. And they are working on something truly amazing, super cool. I'm very excited that they are working together on a deal that you'll hear about at the end. Uh, But I thought it would be really fantastic. We got about a thousand views in our Facebook group on the Facebook live, which was neat, but there are thousands and thousands of you that have not heard this, that I think you will get a ton of value uh, listening to this. So uh, without further ado, we are going to be jumping in. Oh, JK, we need to hear that important disclaimer. This is not financial planning. This is not insurance, tax advice, none of the above. This is for educational purposes only, general in nature, to help you understand what's going on in real estate and potentially how to invest in it. But this is not a recommendation to purchase a fund or to invest in anything or anything else that is specific to your financial situation. So please remember that if you have something going on and you are about to take action on that either you understand what you're doing or you reach out to someone that knows your situation before you make any big financial decisions, because that's honestly just the smart thing to do. All right, now we can jump in and hang out with Dr. Kathy Carroll of Rica.io and Vina Jetty. I guess this would be good if we just start off, just uh, tell me a little bit about both your backgrounds and like that way can everyone can get to know you a little bit and then we'll officially start after that. So Vina, why don't you take a stab, let everyone uh, know who you are and what's up with Vive Funds. Okay. So I'm Vina Jetty. I am a founding partner at Vive Funds, also at Enzo Multifamily. So you may know me from either or. I What we do at Vive is we are a multifamily syndicator. We typically target B-class large multifamily assets in specific markets around the country. Right now, Atlanta is kind of our focus. It seems to be the darling of real estate. So for right now, Atlanta is our focus. I also have assets in Dallas, Orlando, Jacksonville. So those are kind of my home markets, if you will. And I live in Dallas, Texas, so or North Dallas, I should say, Frisco. And I have about 300 and 20 million or so in the portfolio currently and looking to continue growing that. Yeah, this is going to be fun because we're also going to talk a little bit about Element 41, which is what you guys are up to these days, which is going to be fun to dig in a little bit about that towards the end of the Facebook Live slash podcast. So Kathy, in addition to kicking ass and taking names as a physician. What else are you up to? Tell us a little about you. Uh, well, I'm the, the founder at RICA. And what I'm doing at RICA is finding and vetting syndications to help my physician colleagues and anyone who's interested in investing with them. Uh, when I'm not a physician, 
that's what I like to do. My background is actually in finance. I started off in investing. I used to work on Wall Street once upon a time, and I'm a chartered financial analyst. Probably a lot of the listeners won't know what that is, but basically I like spreadsheets. Yeah, she's not a CPA. I am not a financial planner. This is not a CFP. She doesn't mm-hmm. need planning. Also, I like how like casually she's like, yeah, I'm a doctor now, but I used to be on Wall Street. Like it's no big deal. And by the way, for people who don't know, the CFA is like a ridiculously hard exam. It's not like... The CFP plus the CPA on steroids. It is yeah. ridiculous. There's so many smart people I know that I just went to school with or just friends that did not able to pass all three yeah. parts. It is ridiculously it's hard. Very hard. Now I'm getting embarrassed. And then she's like, oh, <laughs> by the way, and I'm just a doctor too. Like She's like, also, that wasn't enough. <laughs> so I'm going to just go to med school all the time. Yeah. Why not? I had so much free time. Why not? <laughs> I didn't have a kid then, so. It, that changes things. It does. That changes a lot of things. Yeah, pretty much. All right. So let's now officially start this for the podcast, and then we will jump in. So... Vina, Kathy, welcome. Thanks so much for coming back on. You both have been guests multiple times on the show and you're obviously amazing people that hang out in our community. So thanks for for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah. So what I want to kind of talk about a little bit is some of the questions I get around real estate, specifically syndications. Um, You both know, and probably everyone listening knows that I like real estate. I invest in it. My whole family's in it. But I don't do a lot of digging in education around real estate because I think there's a lot of other outlets that do that very well. And I kind of like to stick in my realm of financial planning. But we are going to venture out into the abyss here of syndications. And I will, full disclosure, I invest in syndications. I like the stuff that actually both of you are doing. And I thought, who better to have on than both of you to, to chat on this? So who wants to start us off? I think the first question is, let's just talk, what is a real estate syndication? Do you want me to take it? Sure. Okay. So a syndication is essentially when you bring together a group of investors with a common interest in a property and you put together what's called like the equity of the capital stack and you pull your money together so that you can buy larger assets and get some either better terms, better properties, more stabilized assets. It could be lower risk depending on the asset itself. But essentially, it's just bringing together a group of investors to invest into a property. Can you hear me? Yeah, I heard you, but I also heard you twice. So just you can keep going. It's not. Oh, I was gonna say you heard me twice. I don't know if I should be proud of that or not. So but yeah, essentially, it's getting together a group of investors to invest into a common interest. And actually, you don't have to only syndicate on real estate. I just happen to be in the multifamily niche, but you can do it on businesses. You could do it on land. You could do it on various asset classes in general. So you've got a syndicator and you've got an investor. And I think obviously everyone listening here is going to be on the investor side, but, and you guys are on the syndicator, but what is the role of a syndicator? Kathy, why don't you start us off there? So the syndicator is really the one who is doing all the heavy lifting. So their job is to learn the market, to make connections, to go out and find those deals that your average person is never going to find on their own. They have to negotiate for it, get the financing. And then once they actually do that, they have to run it and keep it profitable while staying in contact with all their investors. So it's a lot of work. (laughs) Doesn't sound like that much work at all. 
someone's full-time job or I should say a full team's job, but uh, Vina, anything you want to add on kind of maybe go in depth a little bit more on like how that kind of unravels or just from an investor's point of view, like what would they need to know or think about? So I think when you're vetting multifamily sponsors and we've done a whole podcast on how to vet a multifamily sponsor. So that might be a good literally what it's into like the meat of how to do it. But I think that as you're looking at multifamily syndicators, you want to be looking for people that have that same synergy with what your portfolio is looking to do. Right. So what Kathy's looking for in her portfolio might be different than what I'm looking for or than what my neighbor is looking for. And so everybody has their own risk tolerances and what they want to do within general, in general, within their investments, but even you can get even further down into multifamily. There's various asset classes within multifamily as well. So you want to find a operator or a general partner. So the words operator, general partner, sponsor, syndicator, they're all interchangeable. Basically, that's the active partner on the deal. Someone who does what Kathy had described. So like what I do is being the sponsor or general partner on the deal. And so you want to find someone that has that same risk tolerance, that same time horizon, the same asset classes that you're looking for in your own portfolio. And sometimes you find that across more than one syndicator. It doesn't have to be only one person either. Yeah. So the investors have a certain role as well, right? Mm -hmm. When you're about to put money in, there's is some work that is involved, right? And you mentioned a little bit about how to vet someone and make sure that who you're putting the money with is a good person. They've got some experience, all that fun stuff. But Kathy, what is the other role of the investor, right? If someone is about to invest in a deal, like what does that look like for them? Well, I think the first thing is figuring out if this is something that you want in your portfolio. And that's where you need a good financial advisor, someone like you. And then once you've made that decision is figuring out how much risk am I looking for and what kind of return am I looking for? That's going to narrow down the type of syndication you want. So that would be the first step. And you mentioned risk. Most people are like, yeah, that four letter word, like I I know kind of what it is, but most people ignore it or it's a, I'm going to go buy disability insurance, but I'm not going to get disabled. So this really stinks. But one in four people get disabled, right? So maybe break down a little bit about risk inside of a syndication or just investing in real estate in general. I think that's something that everyone should be aware of. Uh, Well, there's a lot to risk. So the first one, the big one that is on everybody's mind right now is the risk of the economy, right? Real estate is affected. It's often not affected in the same way or at the same time as the stock market, but it is most definitely affected by risk. It's affected in a big way by interest rates. Leverage is one of the things that makes real estate great, but that also means that interest rate is critical. Then there's the risk of the location. The expression is location. That's very true. Some cities are going to come out of this just fine and other cities aren't. And then when you're talking about syndication specifically, you have the risk of the sponsor. How experienced are they? Do they know what they're doing? Do they know what to do when they hit a road bump? Yeah. And so I think Vina piggybacking off that, what what are you seeing in the marketplace with COVID, right? The first thing I immediately think of is like, well, there's going to be higher turnover evictions when you can't maybe even evict. So that means you're going to have some bad debt vacancies. Gonna work. So like, what else, what are we, are you actually seeing those things in the market? Cause I mean, 300 plus million of in your portfolio, you're you're going to see a lot of things, right? <laughs> yeah. So we are definitely seeing some changes pre-COVID. A couple of other risks I just want to 
add or point out that I think are important to know. You don't have control when you're in a syndication. So very specifically, the sponsor of the deal, and I, Kathy, you touched on this, but you don't get to decide when we sell the property, when we um, raise additional capital if we need it, when we do a supplemental, the business plan, the day-to-day, you don't get any actual control over the deal. I think that's important if you're used to being an active investor or you want to have control in the deal, syndications are not going to be a good fit for you. The second risk that I think people don't really think of or talk about is this isn't an illiquid investment. And I think that's important because this isn't like the stock market where you wake up and you're like, oh, you know what? I need $50,000 today. Let me just sell off a part of my portfolio and get that in the next two or three days. You're in for the life of the project. And that, again, is controlled by the sponsor. So you can be in for three years or five years, or if it takes 10 years, you may be in for 10 years. And I think the one risk that no one focuses on, and I understand why, because generally speaking, real estate as an asset class doesn't lose value overnight. And multifamily historically has performed so well after the market cycles start crashing. So after like the 07, 08 crash, multifamily did very well. It bounced back very quickly, but it's not without risk. So you could lose your principal in the deal and you have to go into it knowing that is a potential risk. And someone who's saying is not telling you the truth because it is a risk. We haven't, we personally haven't seen it. I don't want to ever see it, but at the same time, it would be disingenuous for anyone to say you definitely wouldn't because that's not true. Well, it's the same um, thing in the stock market, right? I can go buy, you know, XYZ fund. I don't care if it's an index fund or and some individual stock, like you could and potentially mm-hmm. in the short term lose money in that trade, especially with how volatile everything is right now. So I think yeah. that's a really good point to bring out. The other one you mentioned was the active versus passive. So everyone says, hey, investing in real estate is so passive. I think that's a bunch of crap. I don't think there's anything as passive. Because you still have to vet the sponsor, you still have to vet the deal, you still have to do your all your due diligence. Mm-hmm. And then once I'm like, hey, you know what, Kathy, I think this is going to be a great deal. I'm going to write you a check for 50k. And then it becomes passive to me, but it took a lot of work, it hopefully should take some work, right in vetting, making sure you understand the deal, the numbers, the cash flow, whatever. And then obviously, your own personal finances, you make sure that you are, you're okay with something that is completely liquid. So I know I interrupted you though, but I wanted to make sure we covered those points. Yep. No, absolutely. And so to kind of move to the risk of COVID, which is the risk everyone wants to talk about right now, we are definitely seeing an impact on some of our assets in the portfolio, not all of them. It actually kind of depends on the market, the demographic, what the jobs are like in that area. So historically, when we go into assets, we go in trying to find those solid tenant bases that can withstand some turbulence in financial markets, job markets, various economies, especially as we've been like kind of riding this up cycle for a long time, probably way more than we really should have. But we wanted to make sure that we're prepared for it to kind of be coming back down. And now I don't think anyone, including myself, knew it was going to be almost overnight that the country would just be shifted from a you know bull run to a bear run. And I don't actually even know if we're in a down market or heading to a down market. It's just too soon for any of us to tell, right? But I think the biggest changes that we're seeing to our T12 or a profit and loss statement is um, we're seeing a very large spike on bad debt. And the reason that we're seeing that, especially being as uh, Florida heavy as we are, Florida has a moratorium on evictions. And 
I mean, no one could have predicted that would happen. And when it did happen, it puts us in a position where we can't evict our tenants that aren't paying rent. And what that means is not trying to evict someone who's like sick from COVID and quarantine. It means trying to evict someone that I've had on my books since January that we were, we had a court date scheduled for eviction and they already have, let's say a month of bad debt on my books. Well, now I haven't been able to evict them for the last seven months on top of that. So that's kind of snowballing. But what I think to consider too, is depending on where you are in the project lifestyle cycle, especially if you're earlier on, you typically have more reserves. You haven't really done a whole lot of CapEx. So you can pivot a lot easier and you can kind of withstand that turbulence. So if you're mid cycle on your project, and then you also have this, and then you also have a tenant base that's more susceptible to either being furloughed or losing their jobs, it can add up to a more concerning situation. I And I feel like this is the conversation I've been having with investors a lot. And Kathy, you can tell me if it's been the same for you. But I always say we have like kind of four goals in investing, right? The first goal, no matter what is always going to be to protect principle. So at every turn, that's what I'm going to do. The second thing is going to be um, hitting the pref return or the preferred return rate, whatever that is, whether it's six, seven, eight, ten percent, whatever that number is. The third hurdle or the third thing that we focus on is meeting the equity split on the uh, capital, if there is one, right? So a lot of times you'll see a 70-30 or 60-40 split after whatever pref is met. So that's a third goal. But the fourth goal and the one that we're always going for at the highest level is to beat our pro forma projection. So if I'm projecting a 7% cash on cash, I want to actually hit an 8% cash on cash or a 7.5% cash on cash. So those are kind of like the four goals with protection of principle always being at the core of value. So even when you are starting to see some of those more jarring changes to your PL, now you're not making decisions with wanting to beat pro forma, you're now making decisions with the idea of protection of principle in place. Yeah. So you said a few terms that I think uh, I'm going to have Kathy break down just real quick. So P&L uh, is one. So those that might not know, you mentioned T12 mm-hmm. uh, and you, you did go over bad debt, which I think is good uh, to discuss. And and I appreciate you going through some of the changes in COVID because I, I don't operate $300 million of apartments. I have five houses. Okay. <laughs> Our bad debt is zero and Vegas, where my houses are, even though we're selling, had that eviction freeze for like 14 seconds. And then it was mm-hmm. Vegas again. And they're like, what? Do what you want. Yeah, like, we're up for this. What we've done is that if a house has a renter in it, an agent can't actually go see it and bring people in. That is like the furthest they've gone to protecting anyone. So I, I appreciate you going through that. So Kathy, she mentioned pro forma and PL. So we're about to get some numbers going in here, but tell everyone just in in T12, like go through a little bit of the the lingo that you have there. So the pro forma is what you think will happen. You can think of it just as your projections. This is the plan. If it's a project that's going to run five years, then they should have a pro forma for at least five years and probably beyond that. Uh, And those are very detailed where they've broken out what are the rents going to be? What can we do to increase them? How are we going to decrease our property management fees? Uh, so these are huge models that project all the cash flows in and out through the life of the project. So that's your pro forma. Uh, and as Mina said, the goal is to beat the pro forma. Then the PNL is profit and loss. So it's kind of what it sounds like. It's what's the cash coming in, what's going out. 
Then T12 is the trailing 12 months. So the opposite of the pro forma. So now we're looking backwards to see what's already happened. And that's always good to compare, to look at what did happen and what the sponsor thinks is going to happen and see if it looks reasonable. Yeah, very good. Thank you. So Vina was nice enough to give us all the negative stuff, which I actually thought it would work the opposite, knowing both of you that Kathy would talk more of the negative, Vina the more positive. But let's flip it over here. So what are some of like the perks or pros, if you will, to investing in syndications versus other things? Because I know, Kathy, you invest in single family, you've got syndicate, like you've got all sorts of stuff going on. So what are some of the pros or perks for you to investing in a syndicated Deal. Uh, there's a couple of things. One of the biggest things that I like is that it doesn't move in the same way as the stock market. So the the correlation is never one to one. It changes over time, of course, and you can't assume that what happened in the past is what's going to happen in the future. But as a rule, real estate doesn't move at the same time. It doesn't move in the same direction, and it rarely moves with to the same degree. Right? You see a stock market crash, just like we saw. Real estate's very unlikely to lose 30, 40% of its value overnight. That's just, that just hasn't ever been a thing, right? So the volatility is not the same and the timing, the correlation is not the same. So you would think that an asset like that probably wouldn't be a great investment, that it wouldn't make much money. But actually, historically, syndications have done pretty well. Multifamily in particular, for the most part, has met or beat the return that you can get on stocks if you compare it to something like the S&P 500. Yeah. And we won't go too much in the tax piece because I know that would put everyone to sleep, but there are some obviously tax benefits uh, to investing. I like my negative K-1s to offset other K-1 income. I, I like investing in syndications because it gives me access to larger deals that I don't have to really do much work for. So that part's nice considering my <laughs> single families, even though I have a manager, like there's always something. There's literally always something and I only have five of them. So I like that. I like there's forced appreciation inside of it, right? That's really nice to be able to control how that works versus like, oh, I hope and pray that my neighbor, you know, gives me a decent comp. And when you're investing in single family, you're kind of at the mercy of everyone around you and an appraisal. Yeah. And then the economies of scale. I think we've talked a little bit about that, but that's just nice to be able to do that. It's we're not fixing one toilet and I get price gouged. You know, we're fixing hundreds potentially buying in bulk. It's kind of nice too. So Vina, I do want to trans like transfer it over to you for a few minutes. And and Kathy, of course, chime in here, but you guys have element 41 that is out and this is a different type of raise. So you guys can actually talk about it publicly, which is kind of cool. And I don't have to immediately worry, am I breaking any rules or anything like that? But tell us a little bit about element 41, what you're doing and how things are going. Yeah. So like you said, this is a C raise. So that means that this is a raise for accredited investors only, which is why we can even talk about it in public. And so it is it's a... anymore. It's kind of a bummer, but okay, also... like weird, a right? It's a little <laughs> bit of a relief because I'm always terrified to talk. But so you're breaking the first rule of Fight Club. But no, continue. It's cool. I mean, yeah, we're going to let everyone like peek behind the curtain, if you will. And it's funny you say that because every time I talk about deals, I'm so used to saying oh yeah, this vague deal in Neverland, we bought it for like $10. And I use like all these extremes when I'm talking because I want it to be very clear that it's not an offering. And this too is not an offering of securities. Offerings of securities are only going to be made 
through a formal PPM. And I assume we'll get into what a PPM is at some point. Why don't you just start right there? Just go right into what a PPM is and then talk about Yeah. So um, a PPM is a private placement memorandum and it should typically almost always, I don't think I've ever seen a syndication done without one, but really you, you use a PPM because it protects me as the syndicator and it protects you as the investor. It is your official documents which show that we have bought this property. You are invested into this property. It shows your ownership and it is what you need before you ever wire funds anywhere. You want that document signed by both yourself and your sponsor. Um, if you do not have it signed by both of you, do not wire funds. You are not officially invested into the asset and you have just sent a bunch of money to somebody. And I, I know it sounds like dumb. And I always say that and people are like, come on, Vina, you like, I, I know how this works. Yeah. Every single time I have several investors that wire me funds before they have documents every single time. So don't do that. It's not good. It's a bad habit to be in. But anyway, so your PPM document is what is going to signal to you that you've been accepted into the investment, that you actually own a slice of the investment. And it's also going to dictate the rules of the investment. So when I say to you, I am going to offer a 7% projected return or pref return on a project, the way that's actually true is that I give you these PPM documents to say that. Um, also, I want to just caveat, like none of this is legal advice. This is it. Talent. Okay, good. I just want to make sure that we're like really driving that point home. Reach out to your people that are like paid to look after your portfolio to make these investment decisions. And so generally speaking, a PPM is going to be the like the, the ultimate document you need, whether or not you have any other documents doesn't really matter. That's the document that matters. Our PPMs are very long and boring, but you know, again, the attorneys, they don't really let us have a whole lot of leeway with what we can and can't put in there. They make us put everything in there. The SEC is very particular about what is put into the PPM as well. So that's a PPM element 41. Do you want me to dive into that a little bit? Yeah, or is there anything you want to add onto that piece, or do you want to keep going into? No, let's keep going. Okay. Um, Okay. Yeah. So, Element Forty One is a four hundred and ninety-four unit institutional grade asset in Marietta, Georgia, which is a suburb of Atlanta. It is uh, right now. There's about a hundred and one units that are renovated to what they're calling their gold level, and so the business plan on it is to go in, close the deal, be there for five years. And in the course of those five years, uh, renovate the remaining 393 units that are not currently renovated to that highest tier of renovation. And then ultimately, we would exit the asset to the next buyer who would actually be more of a turnkey operator and not somebody who's going in looking for that value add play. Yeah, because you're not talking small money, even in this entry point, right? How big is this deal? This one's 80 million, 80 million, 25,000. Got to get that twenty five thousand in. It's that yeah. last little pocket change, right? Eighty rounding about- error on like the titles fees. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, I don't think you even want to know what title fees are going to be on this. They're always ridiculous. But when you go to sell it off, like you've obviously put money in, you've renovated it, you've worked through the whole asset, you've mm-hmm. stabilized to where it's uh, you know really turnkey. Who would be a buyer for something like that? Because it's not eighty million at that point. Now you're talking hundred plus. So mm-hmm. who would be a buyer for that? 
Yeah. So your typical buyers at that like $100 million range and above, um, it starts getting really attractive to your institutional funds. So that could be your like trust companies, your REITs, your institutional buyers. Family offices love these kind of assets. So they're, I'm assuming we're going to have a lot of interest from family offices. When we went into the asset, even at 80 million, we were competing against other family offices that wanted this just in their portfolio. So I suspect that's who it's going to end up going to. I mean, I guess it's possible it goes to someone who's syndicating a deal. I think that there's very few people who are actually syndicating at, you know, the even the 75, 50 to 75 million dollar range. There's very few people that actually do deals of that size. Yeah. And Kathy, we had you on a while back talking about different forms of real estate investing. For those that maybe have missed it, when Venus said REITs, that should have, I know that triggered you to think a little bit, but tell everyone maybe what a REIT is and why, like how this would be kind of fitting into maybe their portfolio. So a REIT is a real estate investment trust. So the simplest way to think of it is it's like a mutual fund, but with buildings. So they may specialize in certain types of buildings, or they may buy a little bit of everything. They tend to pay a dividend. Again, so it's a little bit like a mutual fund. I'm personally not a huge fan of them because I feel like you lose a little bit too much in fees. And if you have the money, personally, I think syndications tend to have better returns. Yeah. So either one of you can take this question. This is probably, sadly... I don't actually even know why, but this is one of my more frequent questions is like, hey, look, I'm thinking about investing in this syndication type, whatever it is, multifamily, doesn't matter. But once I invest, I'm putting money into this LLC. How do I know that they bought the property? Like, how do I know that what they said they were going to do is actually happening? And you know, how, is there any, there's like a, I forget who actually came up with the term, but it's like trust, but verify, right? You know, how am I verifying? Yeah. Do you want me to take this one, Kathy? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good question, right? So there's a lot of ways you can verify your investment. So first of all, your PPM is what you want to look at to say, like, I actually own this. But um, beyond that, to see what the, where the funds actually went, you could ask for a closing statement from a sponsor. I mean, I... I think most sponsors would probably be willing to show you that. I think also there are plenty of like third-party sites that have like have the ability or they go out and they find the truly recorded owner and you can actually look up recorded owners in most counties. And so you're welcome to do that. But like if someone asked me that, I could pull a CoStar report and it'll say there like who the owners are and that name should match somewhere in your documents or your org chart. And so, yeah, or a closing statement would be an easy way to verify it. I'm trying to think of other ways. I don't, I actually don't get that question very often. Maybe it's because I'm the planner and they're asking me questions. Oh, that's true. Embarrassed that they, you know, to ask someone else who's doing Mm -hmm. this as a professional. I mean, you never know, right? So uh, CoStar is a subscription though, so they probably won't have that. So I'd say just literally ask the sponsor. I mean, there's no reason to not, I wouldn't be embarrassed. I mean, these are people you're going into business with that you're trusting with your money to do the right thing. Asking one more question, I don't think is a big deal. Yeah. And also I'll add to that too, as a sponsor, like I don't take it lightly that an investor is trusting me with their money. And if I can do something as easy as pulling a report online that I already pay for the service or do a screen share or whatever it is, I don't have an issue doing that because 
I mean, I, I get it. I don't take this responsibility lightly. So one tiny step for me to take, it's not a big deal. I think if you have a sponsor that is hesitating to provide you with comfort around this, I think that might be something that would give me pause around the deal. And typically too, a sponsor will answer all of your questions before you invest into the deal. And that's really when you should be asking your questions is not after you've invested. Because quite frankly, if there is somebody who is doing something that's not above board, once you wire them the money, it's real tough to get it back. So it's pretty much how that works. And just hope you ain't getting it back. You yeah, know, you're not. I mean, unless you spend buying that asset, hopefully, mm-hmm. right? Buying the asset and you know, putting money into whatever needed with CapEx and hoping that it works. So yes, yeah. I completely agree. Please ask a billion and a one questions if you have them. Uh, yeah. You want to feel very comfortable with anything that you do in your personal finances. But this is a large investment that you're likely making, especially if it's your first one. Don't try to hit the grand slam and say, hey, I've got 200 to invest. That 200,000 is not go invested in one deal in the beginning. Learn baby steps, right? Yeah. Is you, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Me? Yeah, you don't want someone to invest. Yeah, no. Um, I, I always tell investors when um, they're, especially as they're like first hearing about it, it's like very exciting and real estate is like really sexy and multifamily gets like a lot of attention. And I mean, look, I'm totally biased. I love real estate. And Ryan yells at me all the time because my personal portfolio is like so skewed toward real estate. And so here's what I say to investors typically when it's their first deal. And I get someone who's like, hey, I really want to put $200,000 into this deal. Unless you have a significant, it's like representing a very small slice of what you're doing. $5 million. Cool. Yeah, that's fine. No big deal. And look, like most of my investors will come in at around a hundred thousand to start off. And that's usually what I recommend is like come in at the lowest amount that you're comfortable with, unless there's like a very specific reason why you have to place this capital, right? Like maybe you need to place capital to rebalance your portfolio or something like that. You don't know if there's going to be another deal or you grew up in this hometown and you lived in Marietta all your life and this asset and you love it and you feel very, you know, bullish on it. Fine. In those situations, go for it. But like, as a general rule of thumb, I personally think on your first deal with a sponsor, come in at a lower amount. And it's very easy for us to say what we're going to do. It's a lot better if we show you what we do. Most of my investors are invested across two or more assets with me. And it's because after the first one, they like it. And then the second one, I often will see like, okay, I put a hundred into the last one. Now I want to put 150, 200 or 250 or whatever that looks like into the next one. So Kathy, if someone wants to invest in one of these syndications, right? It, there's a process, a workflow, like someone had actually asked me like, what is this whole soft commitment thing? Mm-hmm. So I know element 41 mm-hmm. has it because I literally filled it out, but mm-hmm. What what does someone go through when they're like, okay, light bulb, I want to do this too. Hey, I'm actually wiring money. Right. So the soft commitment is just says, hey, hold my spot in line. It's kind of like when you go to the deli and you take the ticket because syndications, they are popular investments and they do fill up quickly. So if you want to hold your spot, but of course you need time to look at the information, that's what you do. So the soft commit does not in any way obligate you to and buy the security. And you can't and should never 
as Mina said, move money or buy anything until you get that PPM, that private placement memorandum. You may have seen a deck, like a PowerPoint type presentation. You may have had a call with somebody like me or Vina, but until you actually get that PPM, you can't purchase anything. So the soft commit just says, I'm thinking, I think I want to do this. Please hold me a spot. So if they want to, for anyone listening, wants to check out Element 41 and see the deck or put a soft commitment, Kathy, where do they go? They could go to rica.io. It's R-Y-C-A dot I-O and it's right at the top of the homepage. Uh, well, thank you guys so much for being on. I really appreciate you guys and spending some time here. So yeah, thank you. Thank you. Okay, so that'll end our podcast piece. We did have a couple questions came in that I thought this one was really good. Amy uh, had typed in, I almost wanted to say call in, but that is definitely not the right verbiage. Like a radio uh, host? Yeah, Amy's calling in. I'm going to be so much cooler because I got this stupid mic in front of me. No, she said, hey, how do I find out about a sponsor's past syndications and outcomes? Like, because I'm, I'm going to evaluate something. How, how do I look? Savina, I'll, I'll go to you with 300 plus million in your portfolio. How does someone actually go, hey, I'm interested in this operator, but I want to make sure they've done something mm-hmm. before. Yeah. Ask them. They will tell you. I think that, and I think especially right now, the question you want to ask more so than like past exits is going to be, how's the current portfolio doing and how are your assets doing today? And the reason I say that is because like, if I tell you about my most recent exit, you're going to be like, wow, that's fantastic. And I always tell investors when they ask me, and then I say, but you're probably unlikely to get returns like that. And the reason being like, this is a different market today than it was six months ago. So when I'm evaluating a sponsor, this is actually what I want to know is how's their portfolio doing today? Because it tells me they underwrote the deal in great times when everything was going really well. Were they conservative enough to be able to be still kind of at least struggling by, if not being doing okay, and hitting pro forma? I also think that it is a red flag if a syndicator isn't willing to share any kinds of hiccups in the road or any kind of bumps in the road that they're seeing on their current assets. You want someone who's going to be transparent with you and you want someone who's going to tell you the truth about investments. And then look, most of my investors, and I'm not sure if it's like that for you, Kathy, but I would assume so that they oftentimes are referrals of friends and family or people that actually like know us personally. So a lot of times it's just kind of, having interacted with us over the course of X amount of years or decades or whatever that is, I think that's how a lot of investors are really vetting the sponsor. Because I always talk with one of my investors and I love the analogy he said. He's like, look, when I'm investing with you, I'm betting on the jockey, not the horse. And so you want a good horse, right? But if they're good enough to even make it onto your radar, it's pr- the horse is probably pretty good. But a jockey is what can make or break the race, right? Like that's how you can win it. And so I think that's a really important analogy because you can have a sponsor who is great. And even in bad times, like not every, no one has a Midas touch, right? And so even a great sponsor can struggle. It's more important to me how they commit to getting through the turbulent times and how do they restabilize or how do they pivot? Or if something does happen, what's my overall experience? Like, how do I kind of look at that? I mean, and that's 
and I'm just spitballing because this is a totally unprecedented time where every single market is being hit by COVID. Every single operator is concerned. I think everybody that I at least know has for the most part kind of stopped their renovation plans. We are all kind of hoarding cash at this point to withstand another shutdown. We don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, I mean, no one knows. How dare you not plan for a pandemic? Jeez. I know, right? Well, it's so what funny. writing is this? I, well, it's funny you say that because before COVID, um, people used to ask me, they'd be like, so like, what's the worst case scenario you can imagine? And I would like kind of like try to think, and it's really hard to think like that abstract because real estate's a tangible asset. Like, like Kathy said earlier, it's not like the stocks where it's going to, it could plummet overnight. And so I was like, well... I mean, I guess like you could have a fire across it, but then I'm like, well, but we have insurance for that. So it's a mitigated risk. And I like keep trying to come up with stuff. And now I totally know what the worst case scenario that I can imagine is. You know when a global pandemic hits? Yeah. I love it. So Victor uh, was in here saying, uh, Vina's like, we're overfunded in 24 hours, which could, could happen. Mm-hmm. Some people probably don't know what Victor means by that. So Tell us about overfunding. What would happen if someone was to find themselves on the wait list? How does that process work or what does that look like? Me, Kathy. Yeah, you. Oh, me. Oh, um, okay. So the thing is I have like a system with my investors. So once you invest with me once, you get the opportunity to invest with me at priority for the second, third, fourth time. So every project going forward current and previous investors get kind of first dibs on my projects. The second round of offering goes out to the what I call like the VIP list or the friends and family list. So I treat any of my current or previous investors referrals at that second tier or anybody that I know personally. I actually, for financial residency or physician finance, I treat all of those investors also as that referral source from Ryan. And so you get that secondly. And then the third list is basically my broader list. Typically, my deals will fill up about 70-ish percent with current and previous investors. And then probably about the rest of the 100% actually fill up in that second round. It's very rare, but occasionally I'll be able to get a brand new investor who like Googled me and found me um, onto one into one of my projects. But once you're on um, the wait list, then you end up, I, what I do is I go down my list and as people commit and wire their funds um, and my funds fill up, I just keep moving down that list. And so let's say somebody reaches out and says, Hey, I committed at hundred thousand dollars and I can no longer do it because of X, Y, Z. Then I just move to the next uh, person on the waiting list. But Truth be told, I my list gets so full so fast. Fund managers like Kathy are a really great way for investors to kind of have some of that spot because she's going to take an allocation. She's going to commit a certain amount out of the gate to me. And so she'll reallocate some of those funds to various investors. So if you can't get into one of my deals at like the um, Vive level, you can always look to someone like Kathy or Victor to get into one of my funds. Typically, usually they'll have allocated funds and they'll fill up quickly too. So I I don't want to say, oh, you'll have plenty of time. It's not like that. You still need to go in and make sure you commit, but it's one way that you can actually make sure that you get a spot into the fund. Yeah. So Kathy, that's where we're talking that soft commitment piece. And then eventually that clicks over to the wait list and then you go down the list. Is that correct? Exactly. 
that makes sense on the, on both pieces. So Amy asked a question again on, is there a way to find out opportunities in advance? Is there a few months before actually funding or do most people have a hundred thousand or more ready to go? I will say that just being on the investor side, I can't speak on the GPs side, the investor side. If you invest in this type of stuff and deals will come, right? It Don't fall in love with just one deal because a deal that might even be better happens 12 months from now. But if you know that you need to invest and that you want to invest and that this is a good piece of your portfolio, you will likely save cash. And then when a deal presents itself that you've underwritten, that you look at it and it fits all of your actual criteria, then that's when you would commit. So most people will have that laying around because they purposely planned. And there's the financial planner in me coming back to, right? They purposely planned out their investment strategy, their portfolio. So maybe they had some cash drag waiting for something to occur. And then when something did occur that fits their portfolio, that's when they jump in. Kathy, do you see anything different or have anything different to add? No, not really. Just that you can't really give people much advance notice, right? If Vina has a great deal, she can't go tell a couple hundred people about the great deal when she doesn't actually have it locked down because that's a great way to lose it. <laughs> so unfortunately, you, you can't just let all your investors know, hey, listen, I've got this thing happening in Marietta, but don't tell anyone. Uh, so you don't get a ton of time, a lot of notice, but that's why, like you said, you do need to plan for this. You budget for this. And then if you think it looks good, you soft commit. So you have the time to learn about it. Yeah. Anything to, to add? Um, you no, know, I think you guys hit on everything. Um, one thing I will say is for my funds, you have three days from the time you receive your PPM to like review it, ask questions, sign, and then wire your funds. But if someone reaches out to me and is like, hey, I'm liquidating my stock portfolio or a part of my stock portfolio to invest into this deal, or like, hey, I'm just waiting for like wired funds to clear my account or something like that. And you can't wire the funds within three days. All I ask is that investors tell me about it because I will hold their spot for them. I'm not going to make you like go through all these hoops and then pull the spot from you. So I think that communication is like really the best way here. A few months is probably not very realistic, but there there's always potential opportunities. So if you commit on a waiting list and you're sitting on a waiting list and like, let's say it usually takes me about the fastest I've ever closed a very large deal, a 50 million plus dollar deal um, was in 57 days. So if you are going to, let's say there's an investor that backs out in the last minute for whatever reason, I'm going to start going down my wait list. And if you're on there, um, you may have had that time to get those funds together. But like Ryan said, you kind of just need to be able to access them, whether you, you know they're invested into something that can be liquidated quickly or not, or if it's just in cash, I mean, it's totally a personal preference. I personally keep my funds in cash, but that's because I'm assuming that I'm always going to be getting a deal like this. And we have to put like 1% down up front and I need access to that cash quickly. So my situation might be a little different. I'm not entirely sure. That's totally different. No one's going to be having to put on 1% down on an $80 million deal. So like, Hey, by the way, I got to throw 800 K uh, down on this deal. Yeah. Most people are not uh, at I, to be fair, it's not always just me. It's going to be all of the general partners together doing it. So I don't have to like write a million dollar check tomorrow. But generally speaking, we keep a couple hundred thousand fairly liquid or 
in an easy to liquidate asset. And then we also have about a week from the time we're awarded the deal to the time we finish negotiating PSA before we have to actually wire that 1%. So we have a little bit of time to start liquidating funds or getting together funds or more likely at borrowing, begging, borrowing and stealing from my parents. Uh, So you did mention liquidating stock pieces. So again, not investment advice at all across the board on all of this, but um, please don't liquidate your 401k. I don't know why, but we've had like 15 people like in the past two, three weeks ask me, even our clients, Hey, should I liquidate my 401k to invest in real estate? I'm like, no, like, please no, that's bananas. Please don't do that. Yeah. Yeah, I, like, I, yeah, someone as biased as me says, don't do that either. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, and, no, no. and don't draw down your home equity loan either. That is not a good use of those funds. No, this is not a time to over leverage. This is not a time to raid the emergency fund. Your emergency fund is for an emergency, which you can use right now. COVID is an excuse that if something happened, your income dropped, whatever it is, you can use that. But that does not mean I'm going to raid my emergency fund to go invest in an illiquid real estate deal. Please don't do that. Like be smart about this. Look at your investment portfolio, write down, actually have an investment policy statement. And if owning real estate is part of that, cool. Talk to these amazing, lovely ladies and they can help you out. But please don't liquidate your 401k. <laughs> like I'm I'm laughing and crying at the same time. It just, what you- I know nothing. Jerry asked, and I think this will be the last one we will do. Jerry asked, uh, what is the average financial commitment by investors? So I'm taking that as like, what's your minimum and then what's most people do? Oh, yeah. For me, my minimum investment is uh, 50,000. I would say the vast majority of my investors come in at 100 to 200. But again, remember, my investors are also repeat investors. So they're coming in at those higher amounts because they've already had um, a track record of success with myself or with Enzo. Yeah. Uh, Kathy, do you have the same minimums? Mm -hmm. Exactly the same. Okay. Uh, I, I want to. I I see one other question. I want to make sure I. Just, I lied. I said I just saw it as I scrolled down. Okay, I didn't know if you scrolled past it. Is um, that uh, Vina invested with Inzo in the past? Is this one of their deals? Are you still with them or separate? Yeah, so I'm still with Enzo. Enzo is like my first baby. I built that company with my hands from the ground up with my partner Seven. I'm still 110% committed to Enzo. The beauty about real estate is that every project is so different and so unique. Even two assets next door to each other are going to be completely different projects. And so one of the nice things is that we can kind of pick and choose what the structure of the deal looks like on a deal-by-deal basis. Enzo, for the current moment, is not planning on acquiring probably through the rest of the year is my guess. Um, Orlando, Dallas, and Jacksonville have been a very laser focus um, for Enzo. And Enzo is very rigid about their investment term. The investment policy that Enzo has is very narrow. So Vive Funds was actually born as a way to take advantage of other opportunities that I felt that we really needed to be in without kind of chipping away at the integrity of what Enzo has built today. And my partners and I, we still you know, work together. I talked to them yesterday. I'm going to talk to them again tomorrow. We're still operating all of the Enzo assets. So this is essentially, if you think about it, as just adding another asset to the portfolio. The only difference is, is this is a Vive Funds deal which means that I am the one that is making the decisions on this. 
every deal that you see my name on means that I am investing right alongside of you. So I like the deal from my portfolio. It was too good of a deal to pass up just because it didn't fit Enzo's criteria. So Vive is kind of for those assets that don't fit into that mold, so to speak. Yeah, I was laughing not because you were talking about Enzo. Taylor, because um, Taylor says you're updating your kitchen. I can't wait. Yeah, to- yeah Ryan just said COVID's an emergency. Can we use the emergency fund? Does that mean we can update our kitchen? That means I need to get off this Facebook Live. I, I think you do. It will end up costing me, and you both will, yeah, probably support her, which is even worse. One hundred percent. I am Team Taylor. I'm in at- favor. Yeah, you guys are both Team Taylor. Of course mm-hmm. you are. It's yeah, true, yeah, true. Yeah. All right. Well, Vina. Kathy, thank you so much for doing the Facebook Live. I, I I know we get tons of questions. I'll probably have you guys back in. But anyone listening, catching the replay, whatever it is, these two amazing people are in our community and you can just tag them and ask them any questions, which is super cool. So thank you guys for being here and participating in the Facebook Live. Thanks, guys. Thanks. All right. Well, hopefully that was really helpful for you guys. I love both of those people. They are so smart and I'm so thankful that they are part of our community. If you don't actually realize the name, not only has Kathy been on the show several times, she writes all the real estate content for financial residency. Super fortunate to have her be such a huge part of our community. And I love what she's doing over at Rika.io. So I highly encourage you to reach out to her if you're interested in trying to understand investing at all. Uh, her and Vina are doing amazing things. And I hint think that they're coming out with some really important educational content. So stay tuned for that. All right. Well, everything's moving along. This is such a cool month. We're talking all about disability and term insurance. Loads of great content coming your way. The the financial residency website is finally, finally, finally getting its remodel. It will be here so soon. I just looked at like one of the last final versions of it and really excited to be releasing a brand new, much more helpful, easily searchable financialresidency.com website. So make sure you check it out. It should be here in a week or so. And I can't be thrilled. I'll probably send out an email. And if you're not on our email, why not join us financialresidency.com slash subscribe. All right. Have a great weekend. And I will catch you guys on Monday for more insurance talk. Promise it's going to be good stuff. Cheers. Cheers.